A few years ago, uh, there was a, a popular film. It was a, a documentary film called Free Solo. Anybody see Free Solo? Oh, wow. Not very many of you. I, yeah, Deborah put her hand up. Deborah and I sat and watched it together. Free Solo is the account uh, of a, a climber, uh, Alex. Oh, his last name just eluded. Honold, thank you. Wow, where'd that come from? Corey. <laughs> Thank you, Corey. <laughs> uh, Alex Honnold, uh, who uh, was striving to become the first person in history to uh, free climb El Capitan. El Capitan is this big granite monolith in Yosemite Park. Um, it had never been free climbed before. By free climbing, I mean that, that he was not going to use any ropes. He was not going to use any help. There were no other climbers around him. He was solo by himself with no ropes or carabiners or anything climb the face of this. Um, the cinematography is outstanding. It's a stunning piece of filmmaking. But while I watch it, I think I felt sick to my stomach the entire time. <laughs> Deborah and I watched this together. You know, we'd heard a lot of buzz. It was winning a lot of awards. And we sat down and watched this together. And we just thought, oh, my goodness, what a... Oh. <laughs> Uh, if you haven't seen it yet, I want to spoil the end for you. Um, you'll just have to go watch it. But uh, he makes this climb in a series of attempts to do this thing. There are certain people in the world that when they stand at the base of a place like El Capitan, they think, boy, I wonder if I could climb that. I wonder if I could get to the top of that. I think it's fair to say that most of us don't really have that in us. If I were at the base of El Capitan right now, I guarantee you my thought wouldn't be, I wonder if I could climb up that. <laughs> in fact, if you stood at the base with me and said, Paul, you either climb up the face of El Capitan or we're going to drive bamboo spikes under your fingernails, I think I would put out my hands and say, let's just get this over with. <laughs> I mean, there's just nothing in me that would want to do that. It, it strikes me as insurmountable, right? You know this, this term surmount, to surmount something. To surmount something is to overcome it, especially if it's some sort of obstacle or barrier. When you surmount it, you overcome it. And so this word insurmountable is something that isn't surmountable, right? It's something that can't be overcome. And to me, and I, and I want to suggest for most of us, something like that, describes an insurmountable feat, doesn't it? There's just nothing that makes me think, boy, I sure wish I could do that. I want you to grab your Bibles and turn to Joshua chapter 6 this morning as we continue our study of Joshua. We're in this book now. We, we did some weeks leading up to because the, the, the man Joshua is mentioned in a number of other places uh, but now we're, we're right in the book that is named after him. And in Joshua chapter 6, what we get is the, the, the first major battle of this conquest. God has brought the people of Israel to the promised land now. He's been promising them for some time to take them to this land that flows with milk and honey, right? And here they are. We've looked at their deliverance, we've looked at their protection, we, we've looked at, at them crossing the Jordan River miraculously, and now they're, they're right in the thick of it. 
And in fact, in, in many of your Bibles, and, and this isn't inappropriate, you know, we have some sort of paragraph breaks and you have some subject headings. Part of what we looked at last week, this, this interaction that Joshua has with this man that he sees standing out there with a sword, you know, this impressive looking man, this angelic being probably, you know. And he, he goes and has this interaction with him. In many of your Bibles, that is where the heading, you know, the fall of Jericho starts. That's not inappropriate. And I, I said last week that this, this interaction sort of kicks off the, the conquest proper. But here we are now. And in Joshua chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. <laughs> We've already seen that that. All of the people of this land of Canaan, they're kind of afraid. They're nervous. Stories have been circulating. Word has gotten out about these people of Israel that some 40 years ago crossed the Red Sea, very miraculously, who've had these, these provisions made for them, these miraculous signs, these things that have been going on. Now they've crossed the Jordan River miraculously. And the people are frightened. They're nervous. And so, yeah, Jericho was shut up tight. Jericho, uh, we've already seen, is a walled city. In fact, Rahab, who we met from Jericho when the spies went in to see it, and Rahab protected them and hid them. We find out that Rahab lives in the wall. Well, that's because at this time, many of these walls were sort of double walls. You know, they'd sort of figured out that if you really want to keep people out, having an extra wall in there uh, helped protect against battering rams. It helped protect, oftentimes, the gates within these walls were even offset from each other so that the outer gate was in a slightly different place than the inner gate, so that even if somebody got through the outer gate, they would have to then transit to a different point in the wall to get through another gate, etc., etc. And so they had this great big wall. And I just want to let you know, right from the outset as we see this, this wall looked insurmountable. At least when you shut it up. And the people of Jericho were frightened enough when they see the encampment of the Israelites. And again, they're right up on the border. And, and, and think of Jericho again as not just the city, but sort of a city-state, but, but even so, they knew. The Israelites, they're right there now. And so we got to close this city up. We know what comes next. But this city was a fortress. I mean, it was shut up real good. And how long can a, a siege like this go on? Well, I, I don't know. I'm no military expert. But they were prepared in Jericho to kind of ride this out. And so they shut it up fast. And I, I, I think that, that that reference to from the outside and inside is perhaps even a reference to those inner and outer gates, the sort of both layers, if you will, of this wall. They were shut up. They were locked up. None went out and none came in. But verse 2 says, The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. Such an interesting statement. Again, I love how often God does this. He basically says, this is already done. I already gave it to you. Like, you maybe haven't done it yet. You might not feel like it's done, but it's already done. 
I already have given this city into your hand. And he doesn't suggest that the city is full of a bunch of pushovers. You know, as it turns out, it's a really big, impressive city, but it's filled with weaklings, you know. No, God says it's filled with mighty men of valor. There are warriors in there. Doesn't matter. I've already done this thing. I've already given it to, do you see? You see, Joshua? I've given it into your hand. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Here's where it starts getting kind of weird. Again, I'm no military expert. I'm no strategist. But this doesn't feel like the way that a, that a military campaign is undertaken, maybe. But he tells them, you're going to get all the fighting men, and you're going to march around the city one time. You're going to do that for six days. Huh? Right? I mean, we can say it. It's a, yeah, I mean, some of us, we're so, we've read this story so many times. We're like, oh, yeah, you know, they march around the city. Come on. This is kind of strange. This isn't necessarily normal. This certainly doesn't seem like it would have a whole lot of effect. But God says, here's what we're going to do. You're going to march around the city. Six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. <laughs> this is incredible. And I love here that God tells them ahead of time what he's going to do, pretty precisely. He says, here's what's going to happen. At the end of this six days, at the end of the seven times around the city on the seventh day, you're going to blow the trumpets again really continuously. People are going to shout, and the wall's just going to lay down. <laughs> Isn't that great? This uh, might hearken for them. In fact, it seems as if they have started using these trumpets of ram's horns after Mount Sinai. And I don't know if many of you remember, but when God comes and visits this nation on Mount Sinai, and he only meets face to face with Moses, but you remember as this dense cloud descends onto the mountaintop, that one of the things that people heard as they were around the foot of that mountain was this seemingly continuous blast of a trumpet that just got louder and louder and louder. And so it seems as if now they've started to use these ram's horn trumpets as, as perhaps even a callback to that as part of their worship, as part of their, their signaling. And they don't just seem to be military instruments because he said it's going to be priests that are going to take up these trumpets. And they're going to blow these things. And for six days, you're going to march around the city once. And then go back home and go to bed. You know, how long did it take to go around the city? I don't know. But these first six days, they seem like relatively easy days, right? March around the city, blowing some horns, and go back to bed. I guess we get up tomorrow, we do the same thing, right? But this is an odd set of instructions, isn't it? 
this makes one wonder what, what's going on. But God does tell them at the end of all this, at the end of the seventh time around the city, on the seventh day, the wall will lay down flat. Now, verse 6, Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and he said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord, went forward, blowing the trumpets, with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guide, the, the rear guard, excuse me, was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Again, we read this and we think, all right, sounds good. Does it sound, what was that night like? What do you think that was like when you came back to your tents, your campfires, as you prepared dinner? I mean, I think I'd be wondering, what was that? I mean, I don't get it. I don't really get it yet. I'm not sure what we're doing here, right? But I think what's important is they do do it. They do follow this command and they do do it. Verse 12 says, Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on and they blew the trumpets continually and the armed men were walking before them and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually and the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp so they did for six days I mean, if you're one of those fighting uh, people, or if you were one of the people who, who weren't one of the fighters and you stayed back at the camp, this must have been such an odd thing. But they do it. You know, here they go. And they blow these trumpets, and you got seven priests with these ram's horn trumpets, these shofar, you know. Many of you have seen these things and heard these things even. They're blowing these things, but otherwise you've got some, we've been told, 600,000 fighting men who are just walking silently around this city. Right? Trumpets blowing. What does it feel like if you're inside Jericho? You know? I, we've been told they're afraid. They're worried about these people. And yet after the first day of this, the second day of this, the third day of this, how many people were in Jericho just thinking, what is going on? What are they doing? Like, what's happening here? I don't get it. Are we missing something? But they do this for six days. Then, verse 15, on the seventh day, they rose early. At the dawn of day, 
And they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city, then, all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. File that one away. We'll circle back to that and talk to it, talk about it. He says, but all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. And so verse 20 says, the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. And the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. That's it. It's so interesting to me that nothing is really said of the battle itself, of the fighting itself. It just says that the walls laid down flat. We don't know exactly what this looked like. You know, some people have imagined this as the wall sort of coming apart almost as if the the mortar between all of the stones just kind of came apart and they crumbled down in a jumble. But it seems like that would still make things kind of difficult though. You know, if you had a pile of rubble, you still have to clamber up over it. I mean, it would still present sort of a wall. And the text says that they fell down flat. I mean, it seems to indicate that they literally did this, right? Doesn't it? I mean, the simplest reading seems to indicate that. In other words, let's just remember this again. This was a miraculous, supernatural occurrence. I mean, over the years, so many people have tried to to either discount this because it's impossible or to try to come up with a a natural solution. Well, you know, maybe the, the, the... the frequency of the trumpet blast and, and the, the resonance of people's voices just resonated just right and it vibrated the walls and they felt, stop, stop trying. I mean, you, you're not going to come up with a natural reason for this to happen. There isn't one. It's supernatural. It's another one of these supernatural, miraculous things. There isn't a natural explanation for it. This doesn't normally happen. And it looked weird. I mean, whatever happened, at, at my personal opinion is that the walls didn't sort of just crumble, into, but that they really laid down. I bet it looked spooky. So much so, though, that the men were able to just sort of walk in. Now, did all of the walls lay down? Well, it doesn't seem like it, if for no other reason. Remember, our friend Rahab lives in the wall. It seems like if her house was part of the wall that just sort of crumbled or tipped over or whatever, that would have been injurious to her and her family. And what we're going to see is that wasn't the case. They were very readily able to rescue her and to bring her back home. So I don't know precisely what this looked like, but there they are. They do what God tells them to do. 
And the walls just sort of... These insurmountable walls lay down flat. And everybody just walks into the city to do what they were called to do. Verse 21 says, They devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, with the edge of the sword. This sounds gruesome. This is a gruesome scene. But God has already said before, I want you to keep in mind that these people of Canaan, these Canaanites, they're a wicked people. They're idolatrous. They do some really despicable things in the worship of of the gods that they worship. And part of what I'm doing with the nation of Israel is I'm not just giving them this place. I'm using the nation of Israel to sort of carry out my punishment against these wicked people. And I know it sounds harsh, but I just want to remind you, a couple of us were talking about this a couple weeks ago, that there is no injustice in God. I mean, sometimes we just need to sort of remind ourselves of that. And I guarantee you that if something seems just to God and unjust to me, I am always the one who's wrong every single time, right? This is a tough pill to swallow sometimes, but we just need to remember that God is just. i got to come back to that in faith at times. And he says, this whole city, with the exception of some of these precious metals, it's all given over. It's, it's considered a sacrifice even to the Lord. I mean, the people, the livestock, all of this, I mean, it seems like there could have been some real great assets in there. God says, no, that is not to happen. With the edge of the sword, it all falls. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring them out from there. The woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. Remember, they made her a promise. Yeah, we're going to protect you. Absolutely. There was this scarlet cord that she hung out her window to help them find her. It's not mentioned here, but it was mentioned back there. And so, verse 23, the young men who had been spies went in and they brought out Rahab and her father, and mother, and brothers, and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And then they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold, the vessels of bronze and of iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And we're told here, and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. At the time of its writing, the writer says, I mean, some of you maybe know her. I mean, she's still living in Israel. She's become an Israelite. She's one of us, you know. Verse 26. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. And, and I, it's interesting that Joshua laid an oath on them. Who's the them? Well, it's the Israelites, right? I mean, they've, they've destroyed everything else. So this oath he lays is on the Israelites. 
He says, cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. And it's interesting because uh, later on we notice that there are people who live in Jericho. And scholars have pointed out that's not really what he's talking about. He's not saying nobody ever live here again. Nobody ever build houses here again. What he says is nobody is going to build up this city as a fortress again. In fact, we see later on there are Israelites. I mean, this is part of the portion of land that's given to some of them specifically to the tribe of Benjamin. So there are Benjamites who are told, yeah, this is part of your land. You can live here, but don't build it up. Don't make this into a fortress again. Don't do this. And he says that the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. And at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. We see this incidentally happen. You want to look it up later. 1 Kings chapter 16 for the fulfillment of this. Sometime later, under the rule of King Ahab, when the nation of Israel had become so wicked, so idolatrous, the Bible says that, that Ahab did more evil in the sight of the Lord than all of the kings previous to him kind of combined, you know. Things got this bad, and somebody does indeed try to then build up these walls again, make Jericho a fortress again. And Scripture records, his kids died. <laughs> Just as Joshua told them would happen. But then we wrap up this chapter. Verse 27, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. This miraculous overthrow of the city of Jericho. The city of Jericho, which was sort of the, the, the major city, the, the perhaps strongest city in Canaan. Certainly the, this, this first one that they, that they come across. But as God points out, there are men of valor in there. It's a heavily fortified city. And for their first act to go in and to be able through God's provision to just sort of walk into the city and take possession of it without hardly even trying. It's an incredible, incredible scene. What's this all about? It's hard to say. You know, again, the, the ram's horn trumpets, did they do a thing based on their resonance and frequency? Well, no, I don't believe there's anything there. But is there a symbolism there? With these trumpets, does, does this harken back to their interaction with God at Mount Sinai? Perhaps. There are a ton of sevens in there. I mean, we see seven figure very heavily often in Scripture. There are seven priests, seven horns. They do this thing for seven days. On the seventh day, they circle seven times. There are lots of sevens in there. I don't want to dismiss that. I think God tells them that for a reason. They do these things for a reason. There's a lot of symbolism but at the end of the day, it's not as if there's a, a scientific or a physical reason for there to be a seven and the seven trumpets, and it does something special. Who did something special? God did something special. The Israelites just showed up. And in fact, I love, you remember, I've said this a number of times, I'm going to say it again anyway though, that when God gives them the instructions to make the Ark of the Covenant and the specific instructions to make the cover, 
He says that space between those cherubim, those angels on the cover with their wings outstretched, two of them facing each other, that that space there will be my dwelling place. I I will come and reside there. And it's interesting that throughout this account, it talks about the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, and yet there's this one mention in verse 8. Just as Joshua commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets and ram's horns before the Lord went forward. It doesn't even say in this one instance that, that it was the ark of the, of the Lord. It says before the Lord himself. They had this understanding that who was going before them, that who was going around the city was God himself, right? God himself is there. God shows up powerfully. The reality is for these people, it's not an insubstantial number of people. 600,000 people, that's a lot of people. But they're also kind of green, right? They're not really gifted warriors. They're kind of new at this. And yet, God shows up and takes this insurmountable thing and makes it very surmountable by just making it lay down. I think this is a good reminder for us yet again. I don't know where you are in your life today, but it's possible you are experiencing your own wall or walls. That like standing at the base of El Capitan, that you're just looking up at something and it just it's too much. It's insurmountable. And I want to encourage you and remind you today that in a sense, you're exactly right. You and your own power and your own cleverness, it is insurmountable. But guess who can surmount it? God. Yeah? It's the same God. This is the same God who takes insurmountable things and says, you don't worry about that. I'll make it lay down so that you can mount up over it. That doesn't matter because I'm God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Anybody else excited about our God this morning? About his power? About his ability to take things that are insurmountable and just say, lay down. Right? But there is something else here I don't want us to forget. I think sometimes when we talk about things, the walls that may be in our lives, they sometimes have to do with battles that we chose, with battles that we like. They're walls in the direction of places that we want to go, not necessarily perhaps where God wants us to go. And I think part of what's important here is that the Israelites didn't choose this battle. Who chose this battle? God. Who chose Jericho as the place that they would first reach and first encounter? God did. God did all this. And God says, when you go where I tell you to go and you do what I want you to do, I will take those walls away. See, this is one of the reasons I've said it so often, but I'm going to say this again too. I don't want this to sound as if we're preaching a health and wellness gospel. 
there are some people who do that. There are some people who, who say, if you just really affirm that Jesus is bigger than your debt, maybe, or Jesus is bigger than your sickness, or Jesus is, is bigger than your ability to get a promotion, or on and on. Is Jesus bigger than that? Please say yes. But is that the wall he is determined to knock down for you? I don't know that all the time. Sometimes we choose the battle. We're like, okay, God, knock down the wall for me. And God may be saying, why? I didn't want you to go there. In fact, I prefer you not go there. We do have some things here where we know God has asked us to go. And sometimes in those cases, we then say, well, I can't, I can't get there. I can't do that. It's too insurmountable. Maybe you're dealing with, with fear in your life. What does it mean to, to follow God? I, I don't think I can do that. I'm, I'm fearful about what's happening in my world. God says, I can get rid of that wall. That's all right. I think we can make a strong scriptural case that in areas like addictions, that that's not God's desire for you. Whether you're addicted to a substance or to uh, 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 sexual struggles, that there are so many of those things. And we sort of end up telling ourselves, well, I can't, it's too insurmountable, I can't, I can't get over it. And God says, yes, you can. I've called you to be holy, I've called you to be pure, and I can take down that wall. I'm your God. I'm not going to ask you to do it and then not provide for you to get it done. For us to serve him. For us to live lives of love. There are a lot of things here that are absolutely given to us as instructions. And all too often we say, I don't think I can do that because there's this wall, see? And I want to remind us that God, who has already chosen these battles, he's already said, this is where I want you to be in terms of holiness and purity and your activity and where your heart and your mind are, your priorities. This is where I want you. If there's a wall in the way, I will remove the wall. I'll get rid of it. It doesn't just mean that we get to determine wherever we want to go and that if there's a wall there, God will just clear it out of our way. Can he? Sure. Might he want to? Possibly. I don't know. But let's just start with the easy and go where God has absolutely told us he wants us to go and trust him in his mighty power to make the walls that stand between us and that lay down flat. Yes, this is our God. And when we entrust him to choose the battle and then to make the wall lay down and to get us through to the other side, that's where we're to be. So I don't know what you're struggling with today. It may seem hard. It may seem insurmountable. And the reality may absolutely be that you, in your own power, 
that it is insurmountable, that it, that's absolutely true. Thanks be to God. You don't have to worry about the walls laying down. You don't have to worry about scaling the wall or knocking it over or punching a hole in it. All you need to do is to be faithful and say, okay, God, I understand. Your word has told me this is a place I need to be. And I'm just going to have to trust you to take down this wall. It may not make much sense to me. Maybe you're going to ask me something weird, like walk around a city for seven days, seven times on the seventh day and blow try. I mean, I don't know. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to trust you that when you choose a battle, you will clear the way for me to get to where you want me to be. Hallelujah. This is still our God. Nothing has changed but the date on the calendar. If God wants to make a bunch of physical walls lay down, he will. I don't know that that's part of his plan right now. But, but if God needs to make a bunch of figurative walls between you and where he wants you lay down, he will do it. This is your God. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your power. So on display, so evident in this story. But God, the reality is your power is on display and evident all the time, all around us. Give us eyes to see it. Give us hearts to respond to it. God, give us an obedience and a faith to follow you. A lot of us right now are struggling. We're struggling with sins, with addictions, maybe with mental health issues. We're struggling with things that seem to be in the way of us following you the way that you have asked us to follow you. Yet the reality is, God, you're a God who makes walls lay down when they stand between us and where you have directed us to go. And sometimes, Lord, we confess we, we want to choose the battle. We want to choose the destination and just chant like some sort of mantra that because you're bigger than it, we'll get there. That's not what you've told us. But when we are obedient, following you, choosing the battles that you've pretty clearly laid out for us, that you're a God who will remove the insurmountable and make it surmountable. We praise you for that. We thank you for that. And Father, help us to trust in that, to trust you more deeply, to see you as this God who makes walls lay down. Thank you, God, for our time. We praise you. We love you. We are in awe of you today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.